Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. What happened to police reform? On the front burner after the videotaped murder of George Floyd riveted the world and fueled marches and protests. Well, the bipartisan push for legislation recently died, though it had the support of major police groups, including the Fraternal Order of Police and the International Association of Chiefs of Police. There have been consent decrees from the Department of Justice. Cities and states have tried to pick up the slack with their own programs. And a little more than a year after the murder of George Floyd, the FBI recorded a 30% rise in the murder rate, the largest on record. Today, we speak with Professor David M. Kennedy of New York City's John Jay College of Criminal Justice and the founder and director of the National Network for Safe Communities to unpack some of the pressing questions when it comes to police and policing. Just why did momentum driving the movement for police reform stall? Why so much violence? And are we paying enough attention to healing the trauma at the root of violence? Kennedy is the author of Don't Shoot, One Man, A Street Fellowship, and the End of Violence in Inner City America, and Deterrence and Crime Prevention, Reconsidering the Prospect of Sanction. He's been working on crime reduction for more than two decades in U.S. cities from Boston to Baltimore and across the globe, and he's currently working with cities on group violence intervention and police reform. After this segment, we'll get an update on COVID vaccines from Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith, President Biden's co-chair of the COVID Equity Task Force. But first, David Kennedy joins Equal Time to talk about police and policing. So welcome to Equal Time, David Kennedy. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It's been more than a year now since the killing of George Floyd and calls for police reform and even in some quarters for defunding the police. Now, as someone who's been bringing communities and law enforcement together, why did police reform in Congress hit an impasse? So my understanding is that the the police reform package in Congress for some considerable time enjoyed some some degree of bipartisan support. That went away, um, and again, as I understand it, it went away amid charges from the Republican side of things that the reform package and the accountability package was about defunding the police, was anti-police, was anti-law enforcement. And I think the most salient fact here is that some of the most mainstream law enforcement organizations in the country came forward and said, that's not right. We've been part of this. We want this. This would be good for the profession. Um, But the political process clearly could not support that. You've been working for decades with communities and police, and in some cases, you've been very successful uh, improving relationships and making a dent in the crime uh, rate in several cities. I know that there was talk of your Boston miracle. Um, So could you give some insight on what worked? Uh, What are some of the strategies that did work and how you think that they could be used right now when people are fearing this spike? In... Any city currently experiencing the spikes, but also having these persistent uh, baseline high levels, both the perpetration and the victimization of violence will be experienced by very small numbers of people in groups and networks who are engaged with one another. And their victimization is astronomical 
it will be hundreds of times higher than people who live in that same neighborhood but are not involved in these high-risk networks and dynamics. And everything that has turned out to work with respect to near-term violence prevention. So there's a long-term agenda here, which is about racism and equity and economics and education. There are things now that can have rapid impact on violence, and they all involve direct engagement with that small world of very, very high-risk groups and networks and individuals. And there are things that law enforcement can do. There are things that community intervention can do. There are things that social services and outreach and support can do that can be based out of law enforcement, it can be based out of hospitals, it can be based out of community organizations, but everything that works identifies and then engages with that very small world of very high-risk people. It's not as though minority communities have been silent about policing problems for a long time. I mean, I grew up in West Baltimore, a community, if you go by, by my poll of one, that was underprotected and overpoliced. And years later, you had Freddie Gray happen, that, that situation, the rough ride, uh, and when he, was, uh, when he died. There, through the years, you had Rodney King on video, uh, George Floyd in Minneapolis, which many folks took notice for the first time, but many minority communities were not surprised. And you had those protests. So in your work, do you think we've learned anything? Oh, we've learned a great deal. Um, one of the things we've learned is that the country, as a country, has not cared about this issue in remotely the way that it deserves. And you, you just said the black communities have known about and cared about police violence for a long time. That's absolutely right. Uh, those same communities have known about and cared about violence as violence for a very long time. And fundamentally, white folks don't care about dead black and brown people in the way that they ought to. That is just a political reality. And the progress in violence prevention has not come from the country as a whole. It has not come from the institutions that ought to be caring about this and generating responses. It hasn't come from criminal justice. It hasn't come from medicine. It hasn't come from the academy. It's come from the affected communities and from a, a very small initially group of you know, violence obsessives who have worked within that reality, which is that the country and, and people in general do not care about this in the way that they ought to. And they have figured out how to swim upstream and figure out how to get a lot of this work done regardless. And the, the really important thing that's happening right now is that the, the current presidential administration has recognized this, has recognized evidence-based violence prevention and is, is working to move substantial resources and commitment to 
the hard won product of those, you know, those decades of ground up innovation. So we we finally have a chance to do this better. Yeah, well, I know that the Justice Department's been stepping in a bit with consent decrees and working with states and cities. Is that uh, a solution? So we're talking about two things here, and they're, they're closely linked, but they're not the same. So one thing we're talking about is violence. One thing we're talking about is police reform. And they're linked in that as long as communities see the police as illegitimate and violent and dangerous, uh, they cannot and will not work with those institutions to help produce public safety. So this, this is what people who say, you know, we, we need draconian punishment, we need you know, um, tough policing and profligate policing in order to reduce violence. If the affected communities don't find policing and criminal justice and, you know, this is their government, if they do not find their government welcome and legitimate and want what it has to offer, then they will not work with those institutions. They will, they will take care of themselves. They will take whatever measures they feel necessary to protect themselves. And that is part of the cycle of retaliatory violence that drives the body count. Um, but it's absolutely possible to do effective violence prevention without fixing policing. And all of the work that's been done that has produced huge sometimes reductions in violence has done it in an environment in which policing and criminal justice is not what it should be. So we don't have to wait to fix policing in order to save lives. Um, we do absolutely want to fix policing partly in order to save lives. Yeah, well, is police reform then possible under these circumstances? It is a very, very difficult moment for police reform. So people, including a whole lot of people of goodwill, have been working on police reform for a very long time. And that did not produce the kind of policing that lots of people in the country want. It's fairly reasonable to say that, you know, after after decades of trying to do police reform, the last year has not produced a lot of new ideas about police reform, right? So we, we, we don't have a, a lot of original, you know, optimistic thinking on that front. The folks who have been really framing up and supporting the defunding and abolition movement are not interested in police reform. They are interested in a kind of public safety that does not include or involve or rely upon police. So that, that movement is not gonna produce ideas about police reform. And the environment to try to work on this is greatly more polarized than probably it's ever been before. So that is all to say this is a extremely difficult moment for dealing with these issues. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you mentioned abolition of police, is that something that you see as realistic? Um, 
I think that there is a central and necessary role for government and the institutions of, of the state in producing public safety. Um, even, even in places that are not remotely as violent as the United States, there are still these institutions of the government. So I, I think that that's not only inevitable, I think that if you get it right, it's a good thing that individuals and families and communities, when they can't handle things themselves, ought to be able to get support from state institutions. That is obviously not the way lots of people and families and communities in this country feel right right now. Yeah. Now, um, in working with the communities, particularly in the last year, do you think that police, it, noting the criticism, and also you mentioned COVID has changed the game a lot, have they changed at all in your observation and how they relate to communities and do their jobs? The, the good ones are absolutely trying. Um, I think the probably the, the truest observation about police in the last year or so is that um, they have been in shock and have not known how to step up to this new reality. Does anything give you optimism? Implicitly, we have mostly been talking about what people now call community violence, homicide, and, and gun violence. That's a term I don't like at all because communities are not violent. There, there is no such thing as a violent community. There are, there are communities that have folks at very high risk in them, but that does not make the community violent, not, not, not arithmetically, not, not socially, not in any way at all. Those awful things draw together amazing people from very different places who share a, a calling and a commitment to doing something about that. And what, what gives me optimism is the partnership and common purpose that you find amongst community people and social service providers and elected and appointed officials and police and people in criminal justice who will absolutely join together to try to do this critical work of, of creating public safety. Um, the problems are awful, but the people are amazing. Mm, interesting. And it's interesting too, those figures in the FBI showed that property crimes and many nonviolent crimes are actually declining, interestingly enough. So I want to uh, just ask you, what question have I not asked you that I should have? Because you really have some things you want to say on that particular issue. Do we, do we have time for a quick story? A quick story, sure. So I spent three years of my life in the late 1990s trying to get the work that, uh, that I've been part of um, to work in Baltimore and bad, bad politics killed it in the end. Uh, I and many others worked incredibly hard to, to make this happen. And the first actual 
community intervention of, of this project was in a church in Park Heights. And into that church, we brought 30 or 40 of the most dangerous men, because they were all men, in West Baltimore. I, I knew people who were scared to be in that room because of the other people who were there. And a community participant in that calling, as we call them, walked up to the, the pulpit, looked at these 30 or 40 most dangerous men, did not speak to them as the law enforcement and other folks had been speaking to them, but looked at them and started to sing a hymn. And every single one of those most dangerous men in West Baltimore stood up and sang that hymn along with her. Dangerous quote unquote communities are not what people outside of them think they are. And if there's something else that gives me optimism, it's knowing that there is, in fact, no such thing as a dangerous community. I really appreciate you joining us for this really uh, important conversation, I think, that people are thinking of, David, and also for the work you do. So thank you so much for joining our listeners uh, on Equal Time and being a guest. Thanks for the opportunity. Now, this is the time I usually ask listeners what's keeping them up at night. On today's show, I pose that question and others on the state of COVID and the vaccine to Dr. Marcelo Nunez-Smith, a co-chair of President Biden's COVID-19 Advisory Board and chair of the White House Task Force dedicated to health equity. So uh, at the beginning of this pandemic, uh, Dr. Nunez-Smith, it was overwhelmingly Black folks, Latinos who were being impacted for so many reasons because they were disproportionately frontline workers. Uh, they were living in communities that had systemic health issues and access to health care problems and also living in multi-generational households. So they had some underlying conditions as well that made them vulnerable. Has that changed since the vaccine? Mm. Yeah, you know, thank you so much. It can feel like so long ago, <laughs> and it really, it, it hasn't been. We're, you know, talking about just the past year and a half, and you, you, your, your summary was just spot on, right? All the many reasons why we saw communities of color in particular just get hit so incredibly hard by the pandemic, um, and hit hard both in terms of the health consequence. You know, when we look at um, age-adjusted, and I think that's an important point, but age-adjusted rates of you know, who was in the hospital and death, just sky high. I mean, really, really significant differences. And of course, when we think about the economic impact in our communities, when we think about the um, educational impact. So just myriad sequelae from, um, from all those initial structural reasons why we saw those differences. So not an issue of biology, but really an issue of the social realities and the legacy of you know, discriminatory practices and, and policies over generations. So I think that's such an important context for us to set. Um, and then now, right, and where are we now and the vaccines and the promise of vaccinations, I think it's, it's still a marvel. I still wonder at it having Three, not one and not two, but three vaccines in the United States that, you know, effective 
protecting us from the worst of COVID-19, hundreds of millions of doses given safely, free, easy to, to access. So, so important to revisit this question, right? Is everybody benefiting from the promise of vaccination? We see now just in these recent weeks, multiple national polls, one from the CDC, one from Kaiser Family Foundation, one from Pew others coming along that show that these gaps in, you know, who's getting vaccinated by race ethnicity have narrowed, have closed. And in some cases, we've even seen a reversal. So for example, people who identify as Hispanic or Latinx, some of these surveys put the rates up at 76% having connected with at least one shot. And that's higher than, you know, the averages we see around 71 to 74% or so for whites. For Blacks, similarly, up there above 70%. And when we look over, you know, uh, those who are over 65, those gaps have been closed for, for months already in terms of race, ethnicity. So kind of older adults getting vaccinated at high rates, so important. Many minorities were mistrustful, some of the medical community, and may have been vaccine resistant as well. Now, has that changed and why? Yeah, it's so important, right? As we have this conversation about, about vaccine readiness and understanding, I think the one, one of the first things I would say is this is an individual by individual decision-making process and conversation, right? And so every moment any of us spends engage with someone who isn't yet vaccine ready is worth it. And we have to come with a spirit of both respect, but also curiosity and not presume to know kind of what questions a person has. Um, but you're absolutely right that if you think about um, the, the ways in which, you know, the government, many healthcare institutions, others have conducted ourselves, um, we haven't always proven ourselves trustworthy. So it's an only rational conclusion that that people will have some degree of skepticism and again it's it's not just the history so it's not just about you know the US public health service study of untreated syphilis in the negro male at tuskegee um you know it's also about people's contemporary experiences trying to go get healthcare and feeling discriminated against treated differently not having access to high quality healthcare I want to ask you, too, the Delta variant, we saw how that really tore through the nation, even though that variant seems to be slowing down. When you look at the overall numbers that do show a downward trend on COVID rates, I want to ask, what keeps you up at night? Mm. Yeah, only one thing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, can't, you can't imagine, right? I, uh, I'm here in New Haven, Connecticut, and we're a small city of about 150,000 people. I remember when we hit 150,000 and one of my close colleagues, actually someone who went on to himself have COVID battle it in the ICU, you know, for a full month, but he reached out and he said, that's as though all of New Haven has been lost, 150,000 lives. And we were stunned by the magnitude of grief and loss then. And so it is almost incomprehensible, 700,000 and particularly these most recent, so many of them preventable because we now, right, this is our conversation. We have the vaccines and, and not, not every person, certainly, but so many people who we've lost could have been vaccinated, um, could have been protected from the worst of COVID-19. So, you know, getting to 100% of those who are eligible to be vaccinated keeps me up at night. Well, thank you, Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith, for joining us from the White House Task Force on the state of what's going on with COVID, the vaccine, 
how we're making inroads with different communities, and to share what's keeping you up at night. Thank you for appearing on Equal Time and updating our listeners. Let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. Check out my columns at Roll Call this week on justice and leadership. And thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.